Okay, guys, we're going to start just a tad bit early because I want to show you something that's going to take a little bit. I mean, I, I guess I could do it differently, but I feel like this is probably best. Um, so we're going to study chapter 3, the rest of chapter 3 today in Gospel Mark. However, rather than just reading it, I thought we would, I would show it. So uh, I think I might have mentioned this before. Maybe Pastor Bukes did too. But in the 19, late 80s on Broadway... Sir Alec uh, McGuinness, who was a uh, British actor, stage actor, did a, um, you know, quote-unquote performance of the Gospel of Mark on Broadway. He uh, recited the Gospel of Mark from the King James Version, word for word, but he, 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 he uh, again, I'm putting in quotes, performed it on stage as if he is telling a story. Well, uh, early in the 2000s, Max McLean, who you might know, if you listen to the Bible, audio Bible, you might hear this guy's voice. He also did a rendition of uh, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, it did perform here in Chicago. Whether this video is from the Chicago performance, I'm not sure. But um, each of the the actors have their own way of of, uh, telling the story of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Max McLean, the one we're going to watch, is he does the English Standard Version, which is the Bibles that we have on the table. So, um, but rather than just starting in chapter 3, I feel like we should start in chapter 1, so that when we get to chapter 3, you kind of are used to his storytelling. Um, Because, uh, you know, it does take a little getting used to just listening him, uh, again, quotes, perform the Gospel of Mark. But, um... It, it only takes like 14 minutes total. Um, so, yeah, he, it's word for word. We're going to stop at the end of chapter 3. And then if we do any... There's, there's a few chapters where he does really well. Chapter 1 is okay. <laughs> chapter 3, though, is really good. Like, he does a really good job of, of um, telling a story. And you're like, you're, you're, you're like oh, he's, you, I feel like you're listening to some guy trying to... You know, he's literally sharing the gospel with you. Um, okay, so uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, like I said, we're going to start at chapter 1. And, you know, hopefully that you'll recognize some of this. Okay, that's good enough for now. Um, all right, so the... Um, all right, so he told the story, and... If you have a handout, there's a compare and contrast sort of thing. We've given you a few things. We've given you the, the uh, comic book strip of Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Um, now we've, we've uh, shown you a kind of re- a telling of the Gospel of Mark. And then, you know, there's, there are little handouts that we hand out, which I, I intentionally made a little bit more nerdy. Well, I felt like it was more nerdy than... than to kind of demonstrate how the, the, the Gospels... In, in Holy Scripture are, I mean, watching him tell the story of Jesus does not take any intelligence. Um, you don't have to know anything about the Bible. All you have to do is just listen. And for me, I, you know, I, I get kind of gro- engrossed in it. I, I actually, I really like him. I like him. Um, you know, his inter- so, but he has an interpretation. And some of the things that he interprets are the way he, he uh, kind of portrays the crowds. That's kind of the most obvious, I think. Because they are, um, 
I would say I call them fickle. You know, uh, when they're amazed, they're kind of like, we, well, we've never seen this before. Or, you know, just in chapter 3 when he's talking about his family. And that's actually a very insightful way of interpreting the crowds because, like, um, in, uh, I keep on to say John, Mark 3, 7 through 12, it's kind of a, it's kind of a hinge sort of scene where it, you kind of leave the synagogue and the man with the withered hand healed and the, and the Pharisees wanting to kill Jesus. And, and then it, it kind of goes into, you know, this sort of um, restaging the story. But the crowds in 3, 7 through 12 are, it's a positive reaction, but underlying this positive reaction, it's a little scary. Like, you don't really know if they're on Jesus' side or not. And his portrayal makes that obvious. They seem kind of shallow. Kind of, they're influenced by his miracles, and, you know, they're just kind of, yeah. And the reason why I say that, though, about, so if you turn to chapter 3, we'll just, I'll just point this out real quick, is um, in, in verse 8, there's a great crowd heard that he's always doing, and they come to him. And in verse 9, he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So um, a sanitized version of crush him is they just like him and they want to get close to him like, you know, young ladies did with the Backstreet Boys, you know, 20 years ago. However, the word crush is instructive because Jesus is crushed in the Gospel of Mark. When they kill him. So it's already foreshadowed that the crowd will call, crucify him, crucify him. So his portrayal is a kind of a shallow portrayal of the crowd, and I, I find that very insightful because the crowd will be influenced very shallowly in Mark chapter 15. So, um, that's well. That's how he gets a lot of popularity. That's right. Exactly. He he moves around, and each time he's uh, wherever he's at, people are drawn to him again for his miracles, his healings. But they are so drawn to him that their their exuberance will crush him. That's why he has to get the boat. Now, the boat will play out in the next several chapters uh, in a primary way. So the introduction of the boat here is kind of important. Um, but you've got to take note of why is there a boat. Okay. Krista. But <clears throat> is it not that when he is in the boat that they can hear him better through the waves? Uh, that's just in one story. Um, but they, he has to go precisely in the boat, though, because they're pressing in on him. So it's not, it's not really just so they can hear him better. No, it, it's, it's because they are going to, they're going to crush him. Um, and then also, too, the variety of the other stories in the boats have nothing to do with the crowds. They have to do with him, for lack of a better term, escaping, getting away from the crowds. In fact, he goes in the boat to a desolate place to pray, but yet they follow him and they beat him there, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. 
So the crowd, again, is, is unruly. All right, anyways, the whole point, though, is, is his interpretation of the crowd and how you can just watch this and you get, you get this understanding of like, oh, these, this crowd is, is a certain way. And then, two, from chapter 2 to chapter 3, the, the Pharisees of the religious leaders now are, are starting, you're starting to form kind of a picture of who they are. And of course, though, that's already introduced in chapter 1 when he says, um, teach, Jesus teaches authority, and then he kind, of, he kind of raises his hands. He's like, not like those leaders of the scribes. So it's, it's very fascinating to watch that and, and be kind of engrossed by this, his storytelling ability. The other interesting thing in chapter 3 that I found very, very compelling is his dialogue about the strong man and the unforgivable sin. Because Jesus is upset. You get that from his storytelling, but at the same time, he's, he's gravely hurt because they thought he had you know, an unclean spirit, and he, he, you know, he hits his chest, and you can see it in his face. And so it's, um, yeah. Anyway, so the whole point is that you don't need, you don't need to know the chiasic structure that I have written on the first few pages in order to get the gospel mark. You can get it just by listening and watching. But at the same time, if you want to study more in-depthly, you can study the structure. And I think I, I ripped this all up from uh, Joel Marcus. He's a professor at Duke University. I, I enjoy reading very much. But um, you know, he, he breaks down the writing of the gospel in a way that highlights... Um, his, the main points of the text. So you have a so Mark one, two one through twelve. You have that kind of chias, you know, chiasm, chiasic structure, where the main points actually in the middle, not at the end. And then in Mark two thirteen through seventeen, you have this kind of, um, I, I think it's called a, a daisy pattern, which I'm not sure what that means, but that's what it's written. But um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's very interesting stuff. Okay, but anyways, I wanted to do that as an exercise to realize that um, the gospel, it's, it's, it's kind of a fun story. I don't know. Okay, so your reactions to his storytelling. Marilyn, you said you liked it. Uh, did, you, did you find yourself engrossed in it, or did you just feel like, uh, I'm listening to some guy read the Bible? Right? Did anyone actually follow along in the page? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> but it, it, I'm glad we turned all the lights off. You could see better. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's almost word for word. It, you know, the, it, of course, there's a little differences, but I mean, not really. I'm just impressed that he, you know, can remember all those words. Yeah, Julie. I liked it almost better than watching, like, a, a, a version where it's in a setting. Yeah, right. Because I find that when I watch, like, it's supposed to be like a historical I'm constantly judging, oh, is that really like that? Like, yes. Yeah, right. Instead of going to the story, and I felt like that just stripped it away. I agree completely. Yeah, now the, the one thing, though, that is uh, kind of artificial, well, there was a couple sound effects, but yeah. But uh, artificial, but I found actually helpful, was the use of the maps. <laughs> I know it's a little nerdy, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's real helpful, actually. Because knowing that we know about the Gospel of Mark and all the scene changes, that kind of gives a graphic res- representation of his movement. 
and then also to where everyone else comes from. So like, for instance, in chapter 3, uh, 7 through 12, where it talks about coming from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, uh, Idumea, or Idumea, the Jordan, Tyre, and Sidon. They're like, uh, I don't know what that is. But it's basically they come from the north, south, east, and west. That would be the kind of the way we would say it today. Barb. Um, I, we have a CV of um, a, a woman um, minister that uh, recites the Revelation, the book of Revelation. Sure. But it's, you don't see anything, but it's done with music, and it's done with sounds. Sure. It gives you the same feeling, and I think I like it better than watching somebody do it, because, again, he influences... So, Barb, I expect you to sit in the back now from my church. <laughs> no, I've made the same argument, Barb, where, uh, you know, seating in church, I'm like, uh, you know, why don't anybody sit in the back? Now, some brave souls do, um, but for that very reason. What, why do you need to see our face? Why do you need to see somebody? You can hear them just fine. So, uh, I won't be offended if you're sitting in the back behind me. Uh, but we do we do speak though, and that's what, I mean. I've I've heard this many times, Barb. Ah, oh, I gotta sit in the back. I, I, I mean, I can't even I can't see your face, which I'm very complimented. I mean, I'm complimented by that. But at the same time, I'm like, well, what do you need to see my face for? Yeah, I am. I you know we we do try to preach in a certain way that is normal. Um, but like for him, for instance, you know, he's, I think uh, Julie, you know, he's trying to tell the story like you would normally tell a story. I mean, you don't tell stories by just, yeah, you know, you got to, of course, there's parts, though, Barb, you're right, where that's why I kind of set the disclaimer on the first chapter because he, um, his interpretation of the demons are, it's a little uncomfortable in the beginning. But by chapter 3, he does a very good job, and this is very important because it's kind of a funny, although he didn't, he didn't play that out, where in chapter 3, again, verses 7 through 12, where the demons say, you are the son of God. Now he shouts it. And that, that's precisely what the word is in the scripture, is shouting. But then again, though, he says, and then what does he say to the demons? Don't tell anybody. So if you're watching, you're like, Okay, uh, it's out already, though. They've already, you know, they're yelling it. So, um, uh, you know, so, so this idea of, of, you know, when you, when you kind of interpret the text with your voice or your mannerisms or actions, it is interpretation. And the same, the same with the, the, the reading that you, you hear on, on tape, that that person or whoever made it is, has an interpretation. So, they, you know, they use music and... So everything is an interpretation, um, and, and so we have to really, um, you know, listen to the whole thing and ask ourselves, you know, what, what's going on here, what's, t- what's being told. All right, um, any other comments on the uh, storytelling? Yeah, Jan. Not necessarily the storytelling, but the use of the maps. Yeah. Sometimes when we see maps, we can't visualize how far that really Right, yeah, that's another thing, yeah. And we need to remember that from Jerusalem to Galilee was basically a... Three-day hike, yep. 60 miles. Yep. Now, think about how long it takes us to drive 60 miles in the suburbs out here. Yeah, right, sure. You know, from here to downtown to the lakefront, 
is not even forty. Right. Yep. It's a very small distance that we're talking about when you talk about Israel, and sometimes we forget that. That's why we had all these people coming from all the different... Yeah, word gets around. Because it's three days' journey. That's right. Yeah, see, and that's why, I mean, I think the usage of the maps, although at first I thought it was kind of like, eh, it, it actually, at the end of the day, I think it's very helpful. <laughs> so... Kind of my, because um, I, I was like, what Julie was like, I was like, you know, you know, just, he does such a good job of just telling the story, you don't need that other stuff, but then at the end of the day, I, I think maps are good. Okay. Um, all right, great. Well, good. Well, let's get into the Bible. Turn to Mark chapter 3. I, I think Pastor Bukes did do 7 through 12 last week, but I, you know, we got our messages mixed up, so I want to make sure that we do that still. Oh, he didn't. Oh, okay, good. I thought he said you ended at verse... Yeah, okay, good. Well, that's great then. You just... You, okay. So, um, in this section... Uh, okay, so Mark 7 through 12 is sort of, like I said, a hinge sort of scene. Because <clears throat> uh, Jesus withdraws with his disciples. That makes sense because people are trying to kill him. And as he withdraws, though, again, the crowds are following him. This is very similar to Mark chapter 1. In fact, Mark chapter 3, 7 through 12, and then 13 through uh, 20, well, through 19, is very similar to Mark chapter 1. Because there is the calling of the 12, which mimics the calling of the first disciples, um, Peter and Andrew, James and John. So, um, so again, it's almost like it's a reset or, or, or reframing of something that's already been happening. Now, again, the other interesting thing about the story, about Max McLean's interpretation, is in Mark chapter 1, he is, he's very happy in his retelling. You know, things are very positive. But it's the beginning of the story, so we kind of miss, I mean, we're just trying to get into it, and so we kind of miss it. But... As now Mark chapter three comes around, this there's you know hunt, like I said a couple weeks ago that was Jesus' honeymoon period. Things now the honeymoon's over. Well, I mean someone's trying to kill you. That's it's a good indication that <laughs> the good times are over. So, um, but but again when the good times are over, so he's reframing the story, but again in a way that's not going backwards but it's still moving forwards. So, um, Mark 3, 7 through 12, Jesus has people coming from the north, south, east, and west. Crowd's passionate, as I already said, but a little unruly. Voting. Okay, so we, I think we did all this. Um, oh, the, the one thing was, is then this, this scene, though, it, it's, it's foreshadowing things, is the Greek word epipito. Um, means to kind of press around, but it also is the same word for like, Attacking. So our translator, the ESV, kind of says, you know, um, does he use actually press? Or, yeah, press around him to touch him. But at the same time, it's it's this kind of almost violent movement. So that's why I say, from my perspective, it's a bit scary. Um, the demons confess who Jesus is, but when Jesus tells them to be quiet, it's not really about suppressing sounds so that people don't hear. It's really about they aren't 
the people who confess Jesus as the Son of God is are people, not demons. So that's why Jesus tells them to not say it. They are unworthy to confess this truth. So, um, so of course, if, if you know, we don't know yet who's going to confess it, but Mark 15, the Roman centurion, coming up. All right, so this picture now then will, uh, like I said, foreshadow a variety of things. Um, but again, it is a, a, the, the human reaction and the demon reaction. Things just are just not quite right. All right. Well, the one thing is it's not boring. So I put it at the end of that little paragraph. No one's bored with Jesus. Either they want to consume him or kill him. The idea of the people wanting to like just grab him. So, um, and that's really, that's, a, that's an instructive point here is that if you're bored with Jesus, then you're, you're, you're probably bored with an idol. Because Jesus is not, is not boring. Besides boring's an attitude, there's no such thing as boredom. I tell my middle schoolers all the time, Pastor, I'm bored. Well, that's your problem. So, um, yeah, the problem's not Jesus. If you're bored with Jesus, you're bored with an idol, or you're boring, I guess. I don't know. But Jesus isn't boring. And we see this clearly in this kind of transition story. Okay, so now this moves then into the commissioning of the 12. And again, like I said, this section is similar to the first section in Mark chapter 1. Um, now, Jesus goes up a mountain to call the disciples. And going up the mountain, now it says the mountain. So, of course, if you say the mountain, I mean, they're not talking about a mountain. It's the mountain. What, what mountain is it talking about? Well, it's not, it doesn't like have a proper name. But the mountain, again, is important in the Gospel of Mark because that's where uh, Jesus goes up the mountain in the Transfiguration. So it's already foreshadowing like a mountain is going to be important in the Gospel of Mark um, because he commissions the Twelve. But at the same time, it conjures up Old Testament ideas of going up the mountain, the mountain being Mount Sinai. All right? Because what Jesus does on this mountain Echoes what's what happens in Mount Sinai. So in Exodus chapter, like for instance, Exodus chapter twenty-four, when the reading of the covenant happens, this is this is like the ultimate point in the Old Testament. So again, Mount Sinai, uh, God kicks butt in Egypt, de- defeats the gods of Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea, feeds them uh, bread from heaven. And then brings them to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai will be the place where they will be together. As a husband and wife. Yeah. Barb. Yeah, the word is mountain. Yeah. It does. And so, um, which, which version do you have? Okay. Yeah, now there's, there's, okay, this brings up a whole other little point, though, is that this kind of goes back to the dramatic retelling, is the other version from the late 80s, you know, he does the King James Version. And in that telling, you, you actually, you get a, you get a different sort of um, impression of the story. And so, which I think is very helpful, is to, you know, not be stuck in only one version of the English 
Bible, but at times use other versions so that you, you get, uh, and then you might say, oh, hey, it's a little different. Why is it different? And then find out why. Do they translate from the King James, or do they translate from the yeah, so, so that's a good... So ESV, for instance, they use the, uh, the old manuscripts, the Greek and the Hebrew, but not isolated from previous English manuscripts. So, um, I mean, it's kind of easy. So, in fact, if you have an ESV Bible, they actually might talk about this like an... Inter- you, ever, you, know, you ever notice there's an... Not in the Pew Edition Bible, but there's an introduction to the Bible. You're like, okay, I know God wrote it. Okay, why do I need to write that? Um, they usually, they, it's usually about the translation itself. Oh, there is. Okay. So I don't know if it says it in this one, but in my, uh, the, you know, the, the ESV I have at, at, at IU, well, uh, it's somewhere in the church, um, talks about that. And it will say we use Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, but at the same time we will acknowledge that people already know the King James or the NIV, and so they'll have that, can be sensitive to that. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That's again. This is one of the important. Chris have brought up. This is two. Now she's brought up two historical kind of points that actually are important, but not as important as the kind of the symbolic meaning. So, for instance, Mark writes not in a way to tell strict history. In fact, if he did we already would point out that Jesus doesn't know his church history because Abathar, or however you pronounce it, was not the high priest when David ate the showbread. I mean, you can look in Samuel. It's not it. So are they, is he trying to tell a historical record? Or maybe the Bible is just, we can't trust it because, you know, that's sarcasm, by the way. Yes, we can trust it. Because what happens is, is what Jesus is doing in that section is that he's using, he's using the, the, this, this um, event for, for a greater purpose. He's not trying to tell a history. He's not trying to go back and look up in your Bible in 1 Samuel 19 because Abathar comes up in the next chapter after that. could be 18 and 19 or 19 and 20, I can't remember. But so, so that's important for us is when we read these things, we say, oh, wait. He got that wrong. Is it because he doesn't know, or is he trying to do something else? He's trying to do something else. Same with the strong man story. Strong man story, and later in chapter three, it's kind of odd because he says, um, "You know, Satan divided won't win," and then he starts, and then he goes and says, because he gives us image that Satan's going to lose because he's going to have a divided house. But then his point has nothing to do with a divided house. He is with a, a strong man going inside a house and kicking butt. So you're kind of like, what? those stories don't actually match unless he's actually showing how, how Jesus is going to, how Satan will lose versus... Um, Telling the means of which he will lose. So it, it, it's it's one of those things. So yeah, so yeah, there's a lot of hills. Okay, great. But when it says the mountain, you say to yourself, "Oh, interesting." Okay, and especially what Jesus does. So back to Exodus 24. 
Jesus in Exodus 24 confirms the covenant and he has 12 pillars that's set up around the mountain. And he takes the blood of the ox and sprays it on the people, which is not a historic retelling because there's a lot of people and there's not enough blood. So what they do is they actually, they actually spray the blood on the 12 pillars, which represents the people. And then, from that point, Moses goes up the mountain with the 70 elders and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. And what happens? God eats with them face to face. There's this moment of, of uh, closeness. So, now, in, in uh, Mark chapter 3, they go up this mountain, and how many people does he have? Twelve. Now, the other thing, too, though, what's happening here is that the 12 were broken up in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes. In 722 B.C., or around there, the 10 tribes were lost by the Assyrians, decimated. And they never really were put back together. So there was a prophecy in the, in the prophets about bringing back Israel. And what is Jesus doing? He's restoring the 12. He's, he's making it again. So a good Jewish listener would be like, uh-oh, the end times are coming. He's starting, he's starting something new. And not only that, though, what is the job of the 12? Forgive sins and uh, cast out demons. Creating a whole new way of life. Forgiveness, restoration. That's exactly what God promised back in the Old Testament and then echoed through the prophets. So when you go up the mountain, you're like, oh, good things happen on the mountain. So you should respect it. Now, the thing is, though, there's a lot of joy. In fact, when he, the guy, uh, Max McLean, when he tells the story, you know, he gets up on that little rock and he's like, he kind of goes through joyfully and then he gets to the end, right? Judas Iscariot. So even within the retelling of those 12, it's joyful because God is, Jesus is restoring things. But at the same time, it's not one-dimensional. Within this 12, this restoration, there's still a dark undertone. Judas Iscariot especially. And then also Peter, James, and John, who uh, are um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the new patriarchs. And we get that from the text itself because Abraham in Isaiah 51, 1 and 2, Abraham's called the rock. So you have Peter the rock and then James and John. So you have this connection now that Jesus is, is restoring the old Israel, but he's transcending the old Israel. He's not making it just for this group of people. He's making it for all people. And, and Judas Iscariot in that list is very important for us because um, it shows the lengths to which Jesus includes, includes everybody. Um, the word Iscariot uh, probably means it's related to, um, I, didn't, I don't really know how to say that word, but it's like Sascare or Scare. There was a movie with um, Josh Brolin and 
in it. It's named after this. But the, the Skari in this ancient Near East were, were basically terrorists. You come call terrorists. They'd go around and stab people in crowds. They would hide swords underneath their robes, and then they would get people who were not toeing the line. So Judas Iscariot probably was associated with this group of zealots. Now, he, of course, betrays Jesus probably for the very reasons that's already been laid out in chapter 2 and 3. Um, Jesus isn't quite doing what he should do. And Judas then sides with the Pharisees. So, but the thing is, though, is that um, what's interesting about this is that um, it's already laying the, the groundwork that in the Christian church, as, as, uh, as, as much as we really want it to be a perfect place, there's betrayers amongst us that will sacrifice Jesus for their own ways. And so, again, in the calling of the Twelve, it's a very joyful reality, but at the same time, it's realistic. Which for me is always helpful. I like to hear reality. I really like to hear realistic stories to help me plan for what's going to happen in, in our life. So, um, the, uh, okay, but anyway, so Jesus is mobilizing his, his uh, army to fight against Satan. And these 12 are going to, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. You'll hear about it later, though, how he sees uh, Satan fall like lightning. All right, well, great. Um, Mark 3, 20 through 25. Right? We're going to move quick. So if any questions, feel free to ask. But 20 through 25. Now, we've already heard this. We've already read it, quote, unquote, read it. That's why I'm not reading it again, because we listened to Max McLean. Um, so um, 20 through, it should be 35, 20 through 35. I put 25 on there for some reason. Which side is Jesus on? So... Um, What's interesting is uh, Satan has a good foothold in this world, in, in the Gospel Mark world, of course now too. But um, and so, as Jesus mobilizes his forces, Satan's already got a foothold in in his closest uh, twelve, but also even within his own family. So, starting in verse twenty, Jesus's family. Consider him to be out of his mind. And that's a pretty literal translation. So it might say he's beside himself. And I think that might be another way of translating it. Um, so Jesus' sanity is called into question by his own family. Now this is a, a uh, thing that's been called into question even in the early church. Just a martyr, I think I put his name down. But, um, in fact, I, uh, last week I just read this other early church letter um, where the guy defends the sanity of Christians. <laughs> and the reason why they're called crazy is because they don't participate in the life of society, uh, worshiping kind of the Roman gods. Um, in fact, the letter I read last week is that um, they, they um, obviously, they don't, they don't, eat meat, 
this group does not eat meat, uh, sacrifice to idols. They um, love everyone, but do not share their bed with others. They love their children. They don't. They actually don't even um, kill them. Exposure. That was a big. That was that was a common practice in Rome. So, um, they're crazy. These people are crazy. So this notion that so it's this. Um, uh, idea that there's somebody else in charge besides the powers to be. And so that's, that, that's the early church. So in the Gospel of Mark, remember, we're taking the, I took this note, like they're in Rome. So the people who are, are receiving this story are in Rome, and they are precisely the weird ones because they don't hail Caesar, they... They love everyone in their church, but they don't share their beds. They, they love all their babies, and um, they don't participate in normal civic life. They're odd. So Jesus then, uh, analogous now, Jesus' sanity is called into question. So if you're a church that's being called a, a crazy, you say, oh, they did that to Jesus too. And if they did it to Jesus... I shouldn't be surprised they do it to me. But what happens to Jesus then will happen to me too. God will vindicate me. And and that's that's well that's what happens to Jesus too. Christoph. When when did uh, come James in the picture? James in the picture, his brother, uh, that was later than two. No? That was in, that's in the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah. So Jesus's family is portrayed pretty uh, pretty negatively in this section and but the point though is really again not a historic kind of retelling but again why is mark telling this part of the story because matthew and luke don't well he's telling it because guess what their early christians family is going to them saying you're crazy why are you hanging out with those christians why are you going to church you shouldn't you should be you should be here so, again, Mark's telling this story because these, the people who first heard it need to hear it. Because he could have just followed Matthew and Mark and, and just left these, these stories out. But they need to hear that. They need to they be remembered how Jesus' sanity was called into question by their own family. And, of course, then at the end of this section... Jesus redefines family. Those people who want to talk to me are not my mother, brothers, sisters. Now he leaves the word father out, which is kind of interesting. Um, those aren't people. Those, they're, not, they're not my family. These people here. People seated around him, which most likely are the 12. But they could be other people too. But just considering the commission of the 12, and that it's definitely the 12. These people here are my family. So for a church that's persecuted and can't trust their blood, the biological family, Jesus then gives them a whole new family. We'll see this later in the Gospel of Mark. Because Peter says to Jesus, Oh, hey, I've given up everything to follow you. You know, good job me, right? And then, and then Jesus says, Hey, no one who leaves mother 
father, mother, brother, sister in this world, they will actually receive tenfold family in the next. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very real thing happening for these, this early church. And so Jesus, uh, Mark is telling this story so that they realize that their family might need to be redefined. And that, that's, that's, that's very important for them. So then with that, though, it comes uh, this accusation, not from just his family, but then from the Pharisees, that he is demon-possessed, or he's under the power of Satan. And um, so then Jesus talks about the strong man. Jesus is the strong man, or he's the stronger, the stronger man. So what happens is, is Jesus makes this abundantly clear that Satan is in control of this world, or he has dominion. But Jesus has now come to tie him up and take his possessions. Who are his possessions? People. We already know people have been possessed already throughout the, you know, for the first two chapters. And Jesus is, is binding Satan, tied him up, and taking back, taking his possessions. So it's a very, it's a very, very strong understanding of Jesus' mission, is that this is warfare between between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We already know that Jesus is going to win, because at the beginning, it's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the demons keep calling him Son of God. So. Even though it looks like things are getting really out of hand, we, we know he's the son of God, so things are going to, things, God will vindicate his son. So the parable of the strong man is the center stage in this situation, and it really reveals how his family and the religious leaders, they, they just, they cannot come together because rather than Jesus being under the control of demonic forces, it's the other side. It's the accusers. His family and the Pharisees are being played by Satan. Now, of course, though, Jesus, though, makes it abundantly clear that the enemy is Satan, not his family and not the Pharisees. And so the real fight is with Satan. Now, of course, he gets angry at people. But he only gets angry at the religious authorities and his own disciples, but um, because they should, they should know better. They should be the ones on his side fighting with him, or for you know. But so um, this is all obvious, though, because the, the family wants to seize him. Uh, he um, that was the one thing that they didn't, he didn't do in the video real well. Um, seize him. It's the same word that he's seized in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we are this foreshadowing that his family is under the spell of Satan. Um, we already know, though, that the, uh, the Pharisees want to kill him. And what happens now is, is that if they can prove that he is working with the demons, that carries a, a, a death penalty. So this is actually them trying to kill him. 
And they're trying to do it with, I would say, in a, a kind of a legitimate way to trap him in his own doctrine or his own practice. But Jesus, of course, they already did that with the Sabbath, and now they're doing it with his miracles. So his teaching and his work. Krista. Oh, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, so this, and we'll finish here. So this unforgivable sin is really saying to Jesus, you're of the devil. You're on the devil's side. That's the unforgivable sin. Um, so what's important there is that, it's so practically speaking, if you're worried that you committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. Because you are concerned that Jesus might not forgive you. If you believe Jesus is on the devil's side, you don't really care what he thinks. This is very important. This is actually very helpful for us. This is not a cause for crisis. This is a cause for rejoicing. Because you're like, oh, good. I'm forgiven then. Because I actually believe Jesus is Jesus. Not the devil. (laughs) So, um, you know, as a kid, I read about this. And I'm like, oh, man, you know. I've said some bad things. I don't, you know. But if you, yeah, so, because this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They're causing Jesus, they're calling Jesus the devil. Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Uh, I mean, now if if you're concerned, I said that one time, and you're concerned about it, it still shows that you consider Jesus Jesus, not the prince of demons. All right, yes, Donna. Wonderful that we believe that Jesus has bound Satan. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. That, that uh, he has come, like you said, he has come to bind Satan. Yep. We think that Satan's on the loose and right. going to grab all of us and our children. And, you know, it's yeah, right. scary because you see all the, the, the yeah, right. rule in this world. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. That's right. That's exactly right. So, see, the, the Pharisees are self-righteous about their demonic activity. They're trying to call it, it's something evil, but what are they trying to call it? Good. So, um, it's, it's very diabolical, what Satan's doing with the Pharisees. The other aspect, too, what Donovan talks about, though, is this like perception of the world being under a different dominion than God's. But see, in the Gospel of Mark, he already sh- he's already showing this. So calling of the twelve, hey, Peter, James, and John, they're going to be great pillars, but they, they are going to deny me. And then Judas, he's going he's to kill me. But as he tells us that, he's also telling there's a greater story happening that's actually in control. The strong man. So, and that's, that's what's happening here is this undercurrent of looking at the world seeing, especially in the early church, these first listeners of the Gospel, Mark, they're looking around, Rome was set on fire, everyone's blaming us, and I, I know my family is going to be eaten by lions and tigers in the Colosseum, but praise be to God, God's in control. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's this... These, this two-level story where the, there's the, the real story that God is telling, and then there's a story that we see, we think is actually happening, but God is actually even in control of this. So, um, 
Yeah, so the, the parable of the strong man is the evidence. Yeah, Jesus has been, um, he's here to kick butt. I mean, it's just, it's great, very encouraging. Um, any other questions? You did write on your paper that only after the parable of sin is the one that charges Jesus to that's right. Yeah. What did you say? Yeah. In the in his he wrote the last before the conclusion. He wrote the only unforgivable sin is the one that charges the Jesus to be under the power of Satan. Yep. Yeah, and that's exactly what. What did Peter do when he confessed Jesus? Hey. You know, you're Christ, and then Jesus says, I'm going to die. He's like, no, you're not. And then what does he call him? Satan. Because he's trying to control Jesus. So Jesus says to you, to him, yeah, get behind me. So, again, he's, Jesus is binding, bind, he's the stronger man. He's binding the strong man. Okay, uh, so we're going to start then. We're going to keep on moving with chapter 4, where we actually have this is probably the red letter part of your Bible. If you have a red letter edition, chapter four is really filled with the uh, the main the main teachings. Well, no, not the whole chapter. Okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. See you later.